to First Church of Christ here in Grayson, Kentucky. My name is Ben James. I am the lead pastor here. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. We are glad that you're watching. Hope that, uh, that you're doing well and hope that you're staying safe during this time. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms chapter 34. We're continuing our Summer in the Psalm series this Sunday and we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 34 and we're going to be focusing on the word redeemed. So as we look at this word redeemed throughout this passage, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory as to what's going on in Psalm chapter 34. Now, this story is a story that takes place, uh, it's a historical story from the life of David. David is the author of Psalm chapter 34, and he writes this directly after this situation, this event that took place that I'm getting ready to describe to you. Now, David was anointed to be Israel's king. He was anointed to be Israel's king from a youth, but there was kind of a weird time gap in between the time that he was anointed to be king and when he actually sat upon the throne. So for several years, there was a gap in between of where David was the anointed, chosen king of Israel, but another man sat upon that throne and his name was Saul. Now, Saul and David had a weird kind of up and down relationship their whole life. The whole time that they knew one another, they would have moments to where they would be really close and the relationship seemed to be really healthy, but then there was also these moments of uh, where it wasn't really healthy at all, all the way to the point that David feared for his life because Saul began to see the warning signs of this this transition between kings that was going to be taking place, and he began to see and hear people talking about the great works of David. So there was a moment that it got so bad, Saul's jealousy, his rage, his anger, his contempt for David had reached such a point that David felt like he needed to run uh, for his life, flee the city so that he was out from underneath this threat of King Saul. Now, it got to the place that David was, was running and hiding in the wilderness. He was making his, uh, his home in caves, and he was being pursued by Saul and his armies at various times. And it came to this one situation where David had no other option but to flee into the land of one of his greatest enemies. Now, we've talked about this a couple times already in this series, uh, that one of the main enemies of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament times was a nation, was the Philistine nation. Now, the Philistines, which we've also talked about, probably the most recognizable Philistine and the most famous Philistine uh, in all of history was a man, the giant, named Goliath. Now, whether you, you probably remember, if you have a Sunday school of VBS background, you probably remember uh, the giant Goliath from those. If you've never been to church at all in your life, you probably, if you're a sports fan of any type, you've heard the comparison of David versus Goliath. Well, David was the one who killed the, the champion Goliath of the Philistine army. And not only did David kill Goliath, but he also, throughout the course of the battles between Israel and the nation of Philistine, they would, he, would, he was responsible for thousands of deaths of the Philistine army. So to say that he was number one on the hit list for the Philistines may even actually be an understatement. But 
Here he goes, he finds himself fleeing from Saul, and the only place he can flee is into a Philistine city called Gad. Now, just imagine this. Just take a moment and try to picture this, because David was probably more famous than most of the people who were um, you know, regular Philistines, who were Philistines' citizens. This is this man, this one that everybody talks about, this enemy of the nation, the one who is responsible for thousands of deaths and the death of the champion. And all of a sudden, you're standing, you're doing your business in the marketplace one day. It's just a normal mundane day. And all of a sudden, walking down the street comes David. And I, I love this imagery. And maybe it's only in my head because we all know that that's a really, it's a pretty dangerous place to be. But just thinking about I'm at the market, I'm, I'm buying goods, I'm maybe getting something for dinner that evening, and I kind of notice something out of the corner of my eye, and I turn around, and there's David. And I'm kind of having this moment that I'm like, does anybody else see this? Is, yeah, that's, that's David. So he was super easily recognizable in this place, and there were several people who recognized him, and they take him to the king. Now, if, if you want to read about this, I encourage you to do so because it's a really fascinating story. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He goes before the king and he knows that nothing good is going to come out of this. He had tried to, out of desperation, go into this one place to try to find a safe haven. And what he finds is he finds himself being ushered into the presence of the king. And he knows that his death is imminent at this point. So what does David do? Well, David begins to act like a madman. He begins to act like he's crazy. And it, it, scripture declares, and I'm not making this up. First Samuel 21, read it, please. He talks about how he starts drooling. And I kind of picture the old Alka-Seltzer tablet trick. You know, the one thing you know, when you put the Alka-Seltzer tablet in your mouth and then you'd start foaming and kind of writhing around. That's what David's doing. That's what is in my head that he's doing. He's acting like he is a madman, that he, he is, he's crazy. And at this point, the king's like, listen, I don't care who this guy is, get him away from me. And not only get him out of my chamber, not only get him out of my castle, my palace here, get him out of the city. So David is taken out, he's ushered out through the safety of the guard, and he's no longer under threat from King Saul at this point, nor is he under threat from the Philistines. And that is what he writes Psalm 34 in response to. You see, because David at this time saw that this event was God redeeming him from certain death. When he knew that death was imminent, that God had redeemed him and delivered him from that. So let's read Psalm chapter 34 together. So starting with verse 1, chapter 34 in Psalms. As I continue to bounce around everywhere but where I want to be at this point. Psalm chapter 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and who loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you once again for an opportunity to be in your word. God, I pray for everyone that's listening to this, that's watching this, that hears the sound of my voice, that God, that we would open ourselves up to what you and your word have for us. God, I pray for the listeners this morning, but God, I also take a moment and pray for myself, that God, that you would remove me as much as it's possible to remove me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you inspire me, you speak through me, and allow my voice to rightly divide your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Psalm 34. I mean, wasn't that an absolutely beautiful psalm? I, I, I love that. I, I know I say that every week that I love this particular psalm, but I do. Every one of the psalms that we've covered, I just absolutely love. And I love the fact that David here, who is the psalmist, asks and begins to give us answers to a question. And that question is, what does life look like for the redeemed person? If you're redeemed, if you've been moved from death to life, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, then he's answering the question in this passage of what should our lives, those that, that call ourselves the redeemed, that call on his name, what does that look like in our lives? So as you begin to think about this message, as we're going through it, begin to think about what our life should look like. What captures and captivates our hearts? What captures and captivates our minds and our thoughts and our energies? And what is, how, how is it that we act? How is it that we react? What kind of conversations do we have? And how do we conduct ourselves and live as the redeemed of the Lord? So my main point for the sermon can be basically summed up with three things. The life of the redeemed is characterized by three things today. First, the life of the redeemed is characterized by worshiping God. Secondly, it's characterized by repentance in our lives. And thirdly, it's characterized by hope. 
Now I'm going to mention those again, but I'm going to put a little bit more of a, of a colorful adjective flair in this just a little bit. So our life as a redeemed person should look and be characterized by extravagant worship of God. It should also look like an ongoing state of radical repentance. And then it should also be characterized by having an eternal hope. So worshiping God extravagantly, living a lifestyle of repentance that seems radical, and having a hope that's eternal. Let's start with the first one of this ex extravagant worship of God. If we'll look at verses 1 through 3 again, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You know, one word that I love out of those three verses is the word magnify. And it's a word that is unique, that really doesn't appear in Scripture all that often. So I would like for us to take just a moment and let's talk about that word magnify. That's to make big, to make great, to show off the excellencies, to show off the beauties, to see all of the perfections that can be seen clearly. And what comes to my mind is I think about magnifying, to see these beauties, to see these perfections, to see and to make great and to make big. I think about how a, a jeweler or a person who is an expert in, in diamonds or something of that nature, that whenever they go to value something or to grade it, they don't just look at it with their naked eye and say, well, it looks like this. They will take it and they'll put it under a magnifying device and they will look for the amount of perfections or imperfections they'll look at the quality of the stone the clarity of it and then once they magnify it once they make it big once they make it great once they've looked at all of the beauty the excellencies the perfections the imperfections then they grade it from there and i love how david is challenging us he's saying oh magnify the lord with me and it's not just this sense of lifting up a song. It's not just this sense of lifting your hands in a, in a song service or in a moment. It's about making God big in our lives. As a redeemed person, that I need to be magnifying God and making Him great, showing forth His beauty, giving off this, this image and this perception of God's perfection in His life, magnifying Him. And I believe that there's, there's a couple things that we need to do. Uh, because to be honest with you, if I'm being transparent here, uh, one of my greatest concerns, candidly, as a pastor uh, for the church, not just this church, but the capital C church, is that we have allowed so easily the religion of self to creep into our congregations. And that everything is a consumer-based model, that everything is about me, it's about how it affects me, it's about whether I like it or not, whether I agree with it or not, whether it inspires me, whether it encourages me, whether it makes me feel better about myself. These things have come in to the church culture, and those are not biblical. So I think that we need to both magnify the Lord, but I think that in our times of when we are being led by self, those are times that we need to magnify ourselves also. 
Now, stay with me because I know that that could sound like a little bit of a contradictory statement to the point of needing to get rid of self. But when you magnify something, just like I was talking about a little bit earlier, if it's perfect, you're only going to magnify the perfection. But if it's imperfect, if it's fallible, if it's flawed, then whenever you magnify it, the imperfections are going to be made more visible. They're going to be made more clear. You're going to see more of the fallibility. You're going to see the flaws in greater detail. So whenever this it's all about me begins to rise up in us, then I think that we need to take a moment and remember, like we learned last week, God is God and I'm not. And if when we look at the magnification of God, it's only magnifying and bringing greater clarity to the perfection in his life but when we magnify ourselves and if we do it truly and we do it rightly then we're going to see our imperfections and our flaws and our fallibilities just come to light even more so i believe that leads us to the second part the repentance part the radical repentance and here's here's what i mean by radical repentance that it goes completely and total, totally countercultural at this time. Because again, it's not just the church culture where it's creeping in that it's all about me. Everything in the world, everything in our outside culture tells us that as well. But what the word repentance means is it, it does mean that we're sorry. Okay? But there's a big difference in being sorry and repenting from something. I can be sorry about something all day, and it's typically I'm sorry because... I got caught and okay well had I not gotten caught would I have really been sorry for that but repentance is something totally different repentance actually means to do a 180 degree turn and go in a completely opposite direction of where you were headed to begin with so if I was without Christ if I was moving straight in that direction the moment that I receive him and I repent radically then that means my life turns completely in the opposite direction and I point my life at something different than what it was pointed already. And that's a continuous state that we need to continue to pursue and continue to cultivate in our lives. And whenever we look at God, we are continually, or we should continually, uh, be reminded of how awesome and how big and how great He is and how uh, not awesome, I don't know if that's even the right terminology, but how flawed, how fallible, and how sinful that we are in comparison to his perfection. But see, it's not always God that we compare ourselves to, is it? Very rarely is my first intuition when I'm doing self-examination and I'm looking at myself to go, I'm going to compare myself to God today. No, what I do is I begin to compare myself to other people. You see, I'm lessening the moral standard. And I'm trying to make me feel better about me because it's always all about me in my flesh. We even do it in churches. We're, we're, we're guilty of this in churches. Even with the people who sit in this house of worship with us that we call brothers and sisters, that we consider family, we will look and we'll go, well, at least I'm better than them. Or, well, maybe I'm not as good as them over here, but hey, I'm better than them. You see, we're, we're trying to manipulate this moral standard. But whenever we look 
to God and say, you are the standard. And even Jesus talked about that, the increasing the moral standard of the day when he looked and he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not worthy. You'll never inherit the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying, don't look at your fellow man and set that standard there. He's saying, look to God because that is the standard. He is the standard. And what that does, when we are constantly looking to God for our level of standard of living, of morality, then that's always going to remind us that we live in a constant state of need of radical repentance in our life, of continually turning to God. And then lastly this morning, the last point is eternal hope. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, I'm, I'm going to attempt not to get too much on a soapbox at this point, um, but I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I don't anticipate that I'm going to do very well at, at staying off a soapbox because I want to, I, I want to talk about part of this me culture that has come into the church that it's all about me and that's basically known the best as the prosperity gospel and i want to talk about that and i want to deal with that for just a few minutes in in looking at this where is our hope because it's one thing to say that as believers we have hope but i believe it's another thing to say that we have eternal hope because i believe that there is a a, a revealing of where our focus is in that moment because I want to give you a couple characteristics of the prosperity gospel and then compare them with what the Bible says. I, I see that the prosperity gospel, what the message of that is, is that Jesus Christ came to alleviate all sickness and to bring both prosperity um, in a, in a um, monetary sense and also to bring us complete and total perfect health. But the message of the biblical gospel is that Jesus Christ came to alleviate God's wrath towards sin so that you may have eternal hope in Jesus Christ. The message of the prosperity gospel is that God helps those who help themselves. But the message of the biblical gospel is that God saves those who could never save themselves. The message of the prosperity gospel is that if you take away my wealth and my health, then you've taken away everything that I have. But the message of the Bible in its version of Christianity says that you can take away everything and anything including my health and my wealth but if i still have god then i have everything the message of the prosperity gospel teaches that god will give but then he will never take away but the biblical message says that god will give but he will also take away but he will never take himself away the bible we, we, we hear so much about him mending the brokenhearted, about him being, you know, coming and, and, and lifting up the crushed in spirit. And you know what? That is absolutely true. So the good news of the gospel is this morning is that our hope is not placed in our health or in our wealth. It's not placed in monetary things. It's not placed on how many things that I have or, or the lack thereof. My hope is not defined by the culture surrounding me. My hope is not defined by a political party. The, my hope is not defined by a, a, an agenda that changes 
from day to day. My hope is not found in this world, but my hope is an eternal hope. And when I focus on Jesus Christ being the only source of hope in my life, then my hope moves from what I can see, what I can experience, what I can feel, to an eternal hope that no matter what happens to me here in this life, here on this earth, that I have the hope in him of heaven. So this morning, finally, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. I love this language because if you are, if you've been a believer for some time, if you've studied the New Testament, then that there's an echo to that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul uses this language that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our hope. He is the only source in a lost, dying, dark, sin-filled world. He is the only hope that can be relied on. He is the only hope that is true. He is the only hope that is forever faithful. And I love the fact that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not based on temporary comfort. It's not based on health. It's not based on wealth. It's not based on prosperity. But it's based on having our hearts transferred from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of eternal life. And that's done through Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you are redeemed, if you know Jesus Christ, then your life needs to look like that of extravagant worship. It needs to look like a constant state of radical repentance because he is our standard. And it also needs to look like we have a source of eternal hope that goes beyond anything that's defined in this world. Will you pray with me again? Father, we thank you, we love you, and we worship you. God, I pray that each one of us who calls ourselves believers would embrace this message coming from Psalm 34, that he has taken us from death to life, and therefore we will live a life that's characterized by extravagant worship, by radical repentance, and, and depends and draws from an eternal source of hope in Christ Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Now this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, I, and you feel that tugging in your heart, you feel him convicting you, you, you felt this message hit and his word really impact you, please make that decision today. You can let us know by going to FCCGrayson.com. There's a prayer request tab on there. We would love to have you connect with us. One of our staff will get with you as quickly as we possibly can. If you have additional prayer requests, if you have other things that you would like for us to be partnering in prayer with you about, you can use that same prayer request page. Once again, thank you for joining us this morning.